Take your Bible out, find Exodus 20. We're going to read in a few moments the Ten Commandments. And like Corey did last week, we'll start at the beginning of the Ten Commandments and then we'll read up through the Third Command. Most of you have probably heard of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, FCC was formed in 1934. Does anyone know what it replaced? Any guesses? It replaced another government agency. Replaced the Federal Radio Commission. And by 1934, they decided we need oversight over not just radio, but other, other sorts of media that were beginning to pop up. And so the FCC regulates any interstate communication, including radio, television, wire, satellite, and cable. Some of you may remember a few years back, I do not have a picture of this, but there was a Super Bowl wardrobe malfunction at a halftime show. Before that event, the maximum fine that the FCC could impose on somebody for breaking one of their rules was $32,500 per violation. And that incident got so much attention and upset so many people, they decided to tack on an extra zero onto the back of that, and they passed a new law, and they said, now the maximum fine, they don't have to fine this much, but they can, maximum fine per violation is $325,000. And so I wanted to do some digging this week, and I wanted to find out what kind of violations would be potentially find that much money because you guys are like me if you've got tv or you get on the internet or you listen to the radio sometimes you just wonder like did somebody forget to hit the mute button or the beep button or why are they saying this over and over and over again and sometimes uh, it can be shocking and so I'll be honest with you, after doing a little bit of research, I'm thoroughly confused about what is allowed and not allowed, and where it's allowed and where it's not allowed. And at one point in time, there was a list of words. They said, this is a list of words. You are not allowed to say these words. And if you look up that list, I'm not going to share it with you, but if you look up that list, you hear those words all the time. And there's no really restraint, even on programs that you may feel like at times your kids are safe watching the news with you. You'll hear them use some of these words, and there's no repercussions. And so I'm confused about the, the rules and the fines and the, uh, the list of not allowed things and allowed things. And it's a government agency, so we should probably be confused. That makes sense. Um, as Christians... We are concerned about what comes out of our mouths. Maybe I should say as Christians we should be concerned about what comes out of our mouths. How many of you grew up singing the song with the line, Be careful little lips what you say? Any of you remember singing that song when you were little? How many of you do not lie, because that's one of the commandments, do not break this commandment. How many of you have actually had your mouth washed out with soap? Quite a few of you. That's good. Some of you, if you lied, that's bad. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. We don't always agree on what words are okay or not okay. Um, you may have experienced this. I know our family's beginning to experience it when your children have friends 
and friends come around and some families are allowed to say some things and some families are not allowed to say some things. And I'll be honest with you enough to say that that's happened both ways with my kids and their friends, where their friends have said some things and my kids have looked at me like, are you going to bust them for that? Are you going (laughs) to... And then my kids have popped off and said some things and people have looked at me like, what kind of parent are you? Why would you let your kids say that? What is kind of interesting is that in cultural Christianity in the United States, we kind of have, let's just say, an unwritten list of words that you should not say. And in place of that, we have made up our own words. And for some reason, we feel like our made-up words, while they express the same thing from your heart are not as bad as this other list of words. And so how many of you have heard of Tim Hawkins, Christian comedian? Tim Hawkins has a whole list. And I'm just going to be honest with you, right? We're not lying tonight, so I'll be honest. I'm not even going to put up the whole list because there's some list, some words on his list of Christian cuss words that some of you would think are okay and some of you would get up and leave because I put it up on the screen. So I tried to be selective in this list. I used a lot of restraint. And if I included a word that really goes all over you, then I hope you'll forgive me. But here are his words. Shucks, rats, gosh, sheesh, flippin', fooey, heck, jeepers, dang, darn it, wingnuts, nerds, criminy, cripes, good gravy, good grief, gadzooks, fiddle-faddle, crud muffin, cotton pickin', Malarkey, Melanta, Buckethead, Dad, Burn It, Dagnabbit, Doggone It, Dad, Blame It, Great Googly Moogly, Jeez Louise, Kiss My Grits, Heavens to Betsy, Jumpin' Jehoshaphat, G. Willikers, H.E. Double Hockey Sticks, For the Love of Pete and for Pete's Sake. How many of you used one of those phrases today? Put your hand in the air. I bet Kay Butler used 15 of them today. (laughs) So here's the thing. The FCC is not really clear on what's allowed or not allowed. They're confused. And if, look, I I made Leon mad. He's leaving. (laughs) Christians are not really clear on what's okay. Because here's the honest truth. Uh, I've been around people who, and maybe some of you feel like those words are, it's not okay to say those words in your house or in when you were growing up, you weren't allowed to say those words. Um, And... The Bible clearly says to us in the New Testament, we're going outside of the Ten Commandments, that no crude talk should come out of your mouth. We disagree on the definition of crudeness, and maybe we need to have a little bit of grace with each other on that. I bring all of this up to say to you, the third command has nothing to do with cuss words. It's not about cuss words. It's not about four-letter words. It's not about lists of banned FCC words. It's not about Tim Hawkins' list of substitute words. You should plug these in instead. It's not about any of those things. And sometimes, especially when I've heard the Ten Commandments taught to children, sometimes we make the mistake of trying to dumb it down to their level. They don't need it dumbed down to their level. Okay? Sometimes we make the mistake of dumbing it down to their level and we take this third command and we say, well, don't, don't cuss. Don't say bad words. Don't, don't use bad language. And I'm just saying to you, that's not what the, the third commandment is about. 
Okay? We can have another discussion about that, about trying to figure out what is crude talk and how, should, how it should not be on our tongues as followers of Jesus. The third command is about how we use God's name, how we talk about God. And certainly it can be paired with band words or crude words or four-letter words or cuss words, but we're not talking about those things. We're talking about God's name. And so look in your Bible. Let's read beginning in Exodus 20 verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through verse 7. The Word of God says this, God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Okay? First question, what does that commandment mean? Just on the surface, not looking anywhere else in the Bible, when you look at Exodus 20 verse 7, what does that commandment mean? Let me share with you a few thoughts. I got this from Al Mohler. It's not a direct quote, but I'm paraphrasing his chapter on the third commandment. The third commandment forbids using God's name in magic in false oaths, and in any other inappropriate manner. He's trying to just explain what does it mean that you're not going to use it in vain. What does that mean for us? What did it mean for these people? And he comes up with three ideas. You don't use it in magic. You don't use it in a false oath when you're lying. And you don't use it in any other uh, in inappropriate manner. So let's think about those. Magic. I hope that that's not a big temptation for you to try to use God's name in magic. It would have been a very big temptation for the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, coming out of a place where people worshiped lots of different gods and goddesses. These people would have heard Egyptians regularly, and they may have participated in this. They probably did invoking the name of a god or a spirit or a goddess or a deity in some attempt to control or harness the power of that deity. So maybe appealing to Ra for a, a beautiful day of sunlight on my crops. And if I say his name just right, then somehow I get some sort of power over him because I have his name and Calling a name or possessing a name gives you some sort of power in an animistic worldview. And so the Hebrews would have been tempted to say, we're going to use the Lord, Yahweh, to try to manipulate him to do what we want. We're going to say that name in some sort of incantation or invocation to try to control him to do our outcome. Now my guess is when I said that you can't use it in magic, you probably thought, ah, good, check that one off. But when you pray 
and you're only praying so that God will do things your way, you might not be that far from one of these pagans invoking the name of a deity to get their way from the deity. If you approach God and you're saying, God, I'm coming to you, you're God, you're the Lord, and here's my laundry list of what you need to do for me. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. It might not be all that different, so we're not going to use it in magic. We're not going to use it in false oaths. You guys know this when you're in the fifth grade and you're on the playground and you're trying to convince your buddy that you're telling the truth. You're tempted to say, swear, swear on your mama's grave, swear by God's name. You, you come up with something significant or weighty and you ask someone to take an oath by that. And God is saying to his people that he doesn't want them to use his name in that sort of way, especially in a false oath. Third, any other inappropriate manner. That may be using God's name as a curse word to express frustration. You think about that? I'm using God's name to express frustration with something. If you're doing that, you need to expand your vocabulary. There's a word you can use to express your frustration so that you don't have to use God's name to do that. Any other appropriate manner. That might be using God's name flippantly. That might be using God's name to express, not frustration, but just shock. You hear people do this in conversation every single day, is my guess. Somebody tells a story, and it's just almost hard to believe, and someone ends or responds to that story with, oh, my Lord. You're not talking about the Lord. You don't need to say his name in that context. In no way, shape, or form is it ever appropriate to say his name, either to express frustration or just to be flippant and express some sort of shock and and fill a conversation or a dead spot in a conversation. So we're not going to use it in cursing. We're not going to use it flippantly. And we're not going to tack it on to false prophecy. That happens in the Old Testament. You see examples of that. People coming with some sort of, they say, this is a word from the Lord. It's a word from Yahweh. And they're a false prophet. They're not speaking for the Lord. What they're saying is not true. God didn't send them to say it. And they tack God's name on it to add weight to it. We're going to sort of come back to that in a minute. So no magic, no oaths, false oaths, and no other inappropriate manner. Second, God's name is important. Why is it so important? It's because it represents his character, all of it. It represents everything that he is, all that he is. And I'm going to teach you a new word tonight. Maybe you can use it in conversation tomorrow. You cannot use the Lord's name, and you can use this, and people will think you're very intelligent. Are you ready for this word? Anybody want to guess how you pronounce that? I had to look it up. Synecdoche. Synecdoche. Don't say it wrong. Then they'll think you're stupid. Say it right. Synecdoche. I found that on the, on the Internet. That's a, I know that's how you pronounce it. I found it on the, on the Internet. Synecdoche. This is a term where one part stands for the whole. Okay? And I'll give you a couple examples to help you understand this, and we'll tie it back into God's name. Uh, we had a fajita cook Sunday at the church, uh, church fellowship. Okay? And in our staff meeting this week, we always talk about events. How did it go? What could we do different? What could we do better? And so we're talking about the fajita cook, and one of our staff members said, this is a true story, said there were a lot of new faces there Sunday. 
overall, we had less people than we've had in the past, but there were a lot of new faces there. What they mean, they're really not saying anything about a face, right? They're talking about human beings. Sort of the same idea where Corey sits in the back when I'm teaching, and at the end of the night, he always texts me how many people were in this room, the number. And I might say to him in conversation, hey, did you count heads? I care more about you than just your head. Or if I say, hey, did, how many noses were there? It's not just a nose thing. It's a word that stands for the whole of a person. Okay, let me give you another example. You probably remember the, um, the sexual abuse scandal that happened at Penn State with Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno and, and all of that stuff and some terrible things were done and the coach knew about those things and he didn't report those things, right? Every person who works at Penn State University was not involved in that. There's a relatively small number of people who were involved in that incident, right, over the years. But because football is so big there, and because Joe Paterno had coached there forever, and because he had been so successful, and everybody knew Coach Pa, that when you say Joe Paterno, you think Penn State. And when you think about his mistake, we just sort of apply it to the entire group. So one part stands for the entire group. And that's what we're trying to say here about God's name. Why is it so important that you don't use God's name in vain? It's because in the Bible, God's name stands for everything that he is. All that he's about. Everything that he's doing for his people. All of his characteristics. All of his attributes. All of those things fall under the heading of God's name. And it it represents his character. So we are not to use it in vain. Number three, I just want you to, to notice something. There's a threat at the end of the third commandment, and it reminds us that God takes this really seriously. Really seriously. I just want you to think about how odd it is that only in the third commandment did God say to Moses to add this on, where it says, In the last part of verse 7, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Don't take my name in vain. Verse 7a. Verse 7b. Because God's not going to hold you guiltless if you do it. It's a real sin. And God's really paying attention. And you're not just going to get a free pass on it. And you say, well, why did he say that here? Does that mean we're going to get a free pass on the other nine? No, it's implied in the commandments. Don't break them. If you break them, you're in trouble. There's a consequence. It's a sin. But this is the one command, if there were any of these, where we may be tempted to look at it and say, well, who's it hurting, really? You know, didn't kill anybody. Not like we're worshiping a statue. It's not like we're worshiping Baal or Allah or Buddha. I mean, we just, it's just a slip of the tongue. You hear it a thousand times a day. We're used to it. It's just the way we talk. And God knows that we're prone to think that way. And so on this third command, that we are prone to take lightly, he just gives us this little reminder. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. To us, it may be a small thing, 
to the Lord, it's a big thing. That's what it means in that verse. Let's think for a minute about what it includes before we look up a few examples of this. What does the third commandment include? Here's the positive-negative test. We've talked about this. We're going to apply it pretty consistently. If a commandment says, don't do this, there's also something that we ought to do. And if the commandment says, do this, there's also something we should not do. So negatively, we never use God's name in any way that diminishes his holiness. We don't take it in vain. Positively, we must always use God's name with reverence and respect. So we're not going to do certain things, and we are going to do other things. A few more thoughts of things that would be forbidden. Perjury would be a violation of this command, right? To take an oath, potentially, that you're telling the truth, and then not to tell the truth. That would be a violation of the command. Blasphemy would be a violation of the command. To say that you are God, if you're not, would be a violation of the command. To say things about God that are the opposite of what he's revealed about himself, things that are completely the opposite of who he said he is, that would be a violation of the command. Flippancy, just saying it. In no way, shape, or form are you having a theological conversation or an evangelistic conversation or a doxological conversation. You just flippantly use Lord, God, Jesus, whatever, as some sort of outburst. That would be a violation. How about hypocrisy? For you and I to come in this room to sing the songs, to say all the right things, to nod our head, and then to go out and live as if none of those things are true? That's using God's name here and not honoring it out there. That's a violation of this command. What is required? Right thinking about God, right praying to God, right speaking about God, right worship of God. In your thoughts, in your words, in your praying, in your singing, we want to be focused on the truth about who He is and giving him the glory that's due his name. A couple of quotes on this positive-negative idea. One from Al Mohler. Every mention made of the Lord with our mouths is to be made with the highest sincerity and reverence. That's the positive side of this command, right? The command says, don't take his name in vain. And the positive-negative rule says, every time you use his name, you need to do it sincerely and reverently. Another quote is from A.W. Pink. Anything pertaining to God should be spoken of with the greatest sobriety. We should be careful when we use God's name in conversation. Okay? Some of you hear all of that and you're getting a little bit antsy. You're thinking, hey, that's a lot. Maybe I should just not say his name quite so much at all. So that I don't accidentally break one of these commands or one of its implications. And if you think that way, I would just say to you, this is on your notes, it is not enough to simply refrain from using God's name. That's not enough. That's what we take away from the positive negative. 
How many of you remember hearing your mom say something like, if you can't say anything nice? So you may be thinking, you know, if I'm going to blow it. I know I'm going to blow it, so I'm not even going to say it. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Did you know that's what the Jewish people did over time? That's the direction they went with this command. They got so concerned that they were going to break this command. And the command, if you look at it in chapter 20, verse 7, it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord. And Lord is in all caps, which means it's Yahweh in the Hebrew, right? Don't use Yahweh, your God, your Elohim. Do not use Yahweh's name in vain. They got so paranoid about saying his name in vain, they quit saying it. When they would read their scriptures together for worship, they would come to those four letters in Hebrew, Yahweh, sometimes we pronounce it Jehovah, and they wouldn't even say it. They would substitute a different word, the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord, capital L, lowercase r, lowercase r, O-R-D, something like that not a spelling champion. They would substitute a different word, and they would just say the different word. They could read it in their brain. They knew what it said. Their eyes functioned correctly. They knew how to pronounce it. They just substituted a completely different word, which is why in our English Bibles, that tradition just carries on. They don't translate Yahweh as Yahweh. They could do that. They could spell it out with English letters. They translate it as Lord in all caps to reflect that tradition. They just quit saying it. It's not enough. Yes, you're not supposed to use it in vain, but you're also supposed to use it with reverence and with caution and with intentionality and with worship to give it gravity. Edmund Clowney says this, In order to obey the third commandment, it's not sufficient to keep ourselves from swearing or even to remain silent. We are to name the name of God and confess It's holiness. So there is something positive that needs to be done with respect to this command. Next on your notes, God's people should never attribute words to God that were not actually spoken by God. Just trying to think through what might be included in this command in our lives. Do not attribute something to God that God did not say. That would be taking his name in vain. To say, God says this if he didn't really say it. That's using his name in vain. One of the authors, his name is Michael Horton, He's, he rip, uh, wrote one of these books on the Ten Commandments. He tells a story. And the story is when he was a little boy growing up, Mike Horton, his parents worked at a camp. And it was in a mountainous area, lots of trees and snow. And his favorite thing in the world at this camp was to ride the snowmobile. He loved to go out as a boy and ride the snowmobile. But he did something, he got in trouble, and his parents said to him, you're grounded from the snowmobile for the whole weekend. You are not allowed to ride it. Fine. Parents are busy with camp activities. They're not really there. He's looking at that snowmobile and he thinks, I got to go for a ride. So he just, he hops on and he just rides the snowmobile. Has a great time, loves it, forgets the consequences, forgets that he has parents, just riding around. And he comes back and his parents are at the house. And they say, you're not supposed to be riding the snowmobile. Now, here's the thing. His parents worked at this camp, but they weren't in charge of the camp. 
So little Mike Horton says, spur of the moment, kids are quick. They're quick because you taught them how to be quick. You're quick too. He says, well, the camp director, let's call him Lenny, Lenny asked me to hop on the snowmobile and deliver something across the camp. So I had to get on, and that's what I was doing. And they say, well, okay, no more snowmobile. And he thought, man, I'm good. Whew, that was close. What he didn't think is that his parents were going to go to the camp director, Lenny, and say, hey, did you ask my kid to make a delivery? No. And his parents didn't confront him about it. They sent Lenny to confront him about it, camp director, whatever his name was. And the camp director said, you used my name for your lie. You, you took me and used me as justification for something that was not right. And you put words into my mouth that I never said. And one of the things implied by this command is that you and I not say, God said this, if he didn't say this. And I'm going to be honest with you. Baptists may be the world's worst. Might be the world's worst. Because we say things like, you know, the Bible says, and then we fill in the blank with the the cultural wisdom that we've had passed down to us, and it's nowhere in the Bible. And what you're saying to someone is, this is, this is what it says in the living word of God. You better be sure it's in there. If you say to yourself, eh, I think it's in there in Proverbs somewhere. Doesn't it say like in, isn't it in Psalms or doesn't Revelation say something about, I'm just saying to you, you might want to take a minute and think about that. Do a, a Google search. Get your concordance out. See if it's really there before you start telling people that God said something. Even worse than that, I think, is when we feel like God is leading us in a certain direction. And to justify that feeling with other people, we say to them, God told me I'm supposed to do this. Or God told me I'm supposed to go here. And you know as well as I do, let's be honest, preachers are the worst about that. I mean, preachers are terrible about it. Having an idea and saying, well, God, he revealed this to me. He told this to me. He showed this to me. I think you need to hit the brakes, and I think I need to hit the brakes before we start saying that God said things that we cannot know for certain that he actually said. So do not say God said something. Do not attribute words to him that were not actually spoken by him. Last We break this command when we settle for or propagate bad theology. When we do that, we're breaking the third commandment. So I had a conversation. I'll give you a few examples of this. I had a conversation with a guy just today. He popped into the office and we were talking about different things in his life. I'd never met him before. New to town. And uh, he started telling me that uh, all sorts of Bible things, you know, quoting some verses half and half here and kind of mashing them together and trying to, to tell me different stuff. And at some point he started to tell me how God was love. And he stayed on that soapbox for a long time. And it became very apparent, you probably know people like this, 
the entirety of his view of God is summed up in the idea that God is love. That's it. It didn't go any further than that. The line around God's attributes and his character and in who he is only was God is love. He had no other concept that God had any other attributes or characteristics or anything. That's a, a reductionistic theology. That's taking the truth of who God is and boiling it down to just one thing. And is that one thing true? That one thing is true. But it's not the only thing that's true. And to boil God down to something like that is to reduce him further than the Bible gives you you warrant to do. It's bad theology. We talked about professing one thing and living another thing. Coming into this room and checking all the doctrinal, theological, moral, ethical, social, conservative boxes. And then going out and being a person who lies, who's dishonest, who gossips, who covets. That's a problem. To come in here and use God's name for our theology and our morals, but then to go out and to live completely differently. is taking God's name in vain. When you pray or you worship without focus or intentionality... You're taking God's name in vain. I mean, I'm not trying to just load a guilt trip on you. I'm just saying, when you come into church and you sing a song and all you can think about is, is Dak Prescott really going to start the football game today? Are they really going to send him out there again? And you know as well as I do, you can sing all the songs and think about a million different things at the same time. You know how I know that? Because I do it, and I know my own heart. I can stand on the stage and preach and think about the Dallas Cowboys at the same time. That's taking God's name in vain. You're just mouthing it, going through the motions, and your heart is somewhere completely elsewhere. I hate the advice when people say, you should always pray right before bed, because then you just fall right to sleep. How disrespectful is that? How offensive is that? You realize that everything we've talked about tonight also involves not just sound waves that come out of your mouth, but also things that you post online, things that you share online, things that you like online, things that you follow online, where you set your profile up and you say, oh, I go to Emmanuel, I'm checking in at Emmanuel, and then... We scroll through your social media and we see a completely different person that we're horrified about. You may not have said anything out loud, but that's taking God's name in vain, digitally. One thing I didn't put on your notes, I just want to bring it up and say, honestly, I don't know about this. Um, I have some thoughts about it, but I'm not exactly sure. One thing I'm not, I don't want to be dogmatic about is humor. How does humor fit into this? We talked about Tim Hawkins. He's funny. I've been to a show. He's hilarious. And uh, I know people who would go to that show and find it deeply offensive, irreverent, not appropriate, joking about things that you shouldn't joke about. Um, what is the role of humor? Are we allowed to joke and laugh? Can we joke and laugh about Football, but not spiritual things. Is church off limits? How does that work? My thought on it is, um, the Bible says some funny things if you pay attention. I mean, it's not just a joke book, and it's not filled with, you know, barrels of laughs from beginning to end. 
But there's stuff in there, if you're paying attention and you really think about it, that is funny. And uh, I think because the Bible uses humor, I think humor is good. I think it can be done respectfully. But I think there is a very real line where humor can go too far. And all of a sudden it's disrespectful to God. And we're simply using God's name to get a laugh. That may be problematic. So... Um, I know a, a lady who was a member of my church in Kentucky, and our local association of churches was bringing in a Christian comedian, and um, I can't recall his name right now, a fairly well-known guy, and all the churches were invited, and she was horrified that our Baptist association was going to bring this guy in because she said, I've heard him, I've been to his show before, and he talks about God, and he doesn't do it respectfully. I don't know. I haven't been to that guy. I haven't heard that comedy routine. But I respect somebody who's concerned about that. I wouldn't try to convince them to go and just get over it. I think if you're concerned about that, that needs to be your conviction. And you may not need to impose that conviction on everyone else, but I have respect for that. And I think it's something that that maybe we ought to be a little bit careful of. So there you go. We can talk about that later if you want to argue or, or talk about it. Take your Bible. Let's just look at a few passages quickly. Look at Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24. Starting in verse 11. It says, And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. That does not mean, he said, one of the FCC's banned words. That means, if you read up above, his mother was an Israelite, his father was an Egyptian, he went out of Egypt with the people of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and another man fought. They had a fight. And you can imagine how this would go. In the fight, in the heat of the the conflict, the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name, used God's name as a curse. Then they brought him to Moses His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri, the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let the congregation stone him. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. I understand how that sounds to people in the United States in 2018. I know that sounds barbaric and crazy and backward and primitive and all of it. And all we can say is there's no evidence that they stoned every person who ever did this. But this is somebody who walked out of Egypt, who saw remarkable things. And one of the things you you notice when you read through the, the stories of this early generation, including Moses later, they were held to a very high standard because of the things that they had experienced in the Exodus. And when this guy curses using the name, God's decision is that they kill him. And it goes all the way back to Exodus 20 verse 7 where he says, Don't think that this is light. He will not be held guiltless who takes the Lord's name in vain. 
Look in the New Testament. Let's look at a few of these verses. Look at Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard, it, heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Pay attention to the list here. Okay, Don't take an oath, number one, by heaven. It's the throne of God. Or by the earth, number two, it's his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've got a few minority religious groups that look at that and they say, Look, if you call me into court, I'm not going to be able to take an oath because it's against my religion. I don't think that has anything to do with what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking to a group of men who realized we're not supposed to use God's name in an oath that we might end up breaking. They understood the command. Number three, do not take his name in vain. So they said, well, we're not going to swear by God. We'll swear by heaven. I swear by heaven. Or I'll swear by earth. Or I'll swear by Jerusalem. Or I'll swear by my own head. Whatever. Fill in the blank. And what Jesus is saying to these guys is, what you're doing is not cute or funny. You understand that you're not supposed to take God's name in vain, so you've swapped it out with something else. You're still taking God's name in vain. God's the one that lives in heaven. The earth is his footstool. He's the one that can make the hairs of your head white or gray. He's the one that lives in Jerusalem and makes it a holy city. You can substitute whatever you want. You're really doing the exact same thing. I I mentioned that passage just to say, here's a group of men that thought they found a loophole. They thought they found a way around the command. Something that they could do that wouldn't be exactly what God was forbidding. And Jesus just comes in and he blows that up and he says, quit playing games with the command. Like, Quit trying to see where the line is and to see how close you can get to it without putting your toe over it. Why don't you just run away from it and not try to break it at all rather than try to get right up as close to it as possible without sinning? Matthew 6, we're right there. The very first petition in the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. It's not just about a collection of sounds that come out of your mouth, the Lord or God or Yahweh or Elohim or Adonai. You pick the term, but it's about God and all of his character. He wants God and who he is to be hallowed and worshipped and reverenced. Let's talk about Jesus. You can look up the verse in Second Peter on your own. One of the interesting things when you think about the life of Jesus is the fact that his enemies, the Pharisees, regularly accused him of breaking this commandment. Regularly. They didn't go around and argue with Jesus about, ah, you're an adulterer. They didn't go around and say, oh, you murdered somebody. But they very often confronted Jesus and said, you are guilty of blasphemy. You have taken God's name in vain. And usually it's because Jesus was talking about himself in very exalted terms as if he was equal to the Father or as if he were God. 
So you think, for example, in John chapter 8, Jesus is debating with these men. And he says something like, before Abraham was, I am. And they know exactly what Jesus is trying to say. And they pick up stones. They're ready to kill him right there on the spot. That's blasphemy. They killed that guy in Leviticus 24, and we're going to kill you too. You fast forward to the end of his life, and as Jesus stands before uh, these, these different rulers and these mock trials on the night before the crucifixion, they, they accuse him of blasphemy. He's making himself equal with God. And the high priest goes to all this dramatic Uh, length of tearing his clothes because he's so offended that Jesus has committed blasphemy. Edmund Clowney says this. I think this is a great quote. Jesus' life and words are full of blasphemy unless he truly is the God of glory come to live among men. This sort of goes back to the C.S. Lewis argument that you you can't have it both ways. You can't try to have Jesus as a good guy, but not God. you got to pick. Either he's a crazy man, or he's a liar, or he's just a, a, a wicked person who claimed to be someone he wasn't, or he is who he claimed to be. Because when you read through the Gospels, it's abundantly clear that either he's guilty of breaking this command, or he is who he says he is. I have a friend in Kentucky who was in the military. He was not a believer. Somebody gave him a a Gideon Bible, and he started to read it. He had never been churched. He had never read the Bible. He had never been to Sunday school. He just started reading through the Gospels. He read through the Gospels. He put it down, and he said, that's the story of the most arrogant man that ever walked the face of the earth. That guy's crazy. And he left it alone, and he thought about it, and it sat on his heart, and it made him uneasy. And eventually, he picked it back up, and he read it through the second time, and he came through it the second time and he said I believe he is who he says he is but those are your only two choices either he's guilty of blasphemy or he is who he says he is so we'll end with this Jesus never did, said, thought felt anything that brought dishonor to God's name nothing not one time Never did he take God's name in vain in any way, shape, or form. Not in his actions, not in his words, not in his thoughts, not in his feelings. Instead, Jesus always brought honor to God's name with his deeds, words, thoughts, and feelings. He kept this command perfectly. Not just in not breaking it, but also in always doing and saying and feeling and thinking what he should have felt that honored God's name. Because he did that, at the end of his life, he's able to die as a sacrifice. Not just an innocent sacrifice, but a righteous sacrifice. Someone who's kept the law fully. So that he dies for our blasphemy. He dies for all the times that you and I have taken God's name in vain. That gets put on him as if he truly is a blasphemer. As if his opponents are right. And he dies for it. And by faith, we receive his righteousness. We receive his obedience as if we had never broken this command. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we could become the righteousness of God. He takes our blasphemy. We, by faith, receive his righteousness. So that's command number three.